0: Welcome to the Iowa Journalist podcast series presented by the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communications. I'm your host, Dylan Fadden. On this episode, I talked to Craig Watkins, a University of Texas at Austin professor who specializes in young people's engagement with the media. Over the course of his career, he has researched and written several books, including his last two, The Digital Age and Don't Knock the Hustle.
1: Yeah, Craig Watkins, I am a professor in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm also the founding director of the Institute for Media Innovation. And I primarily study technology from a sociological perspective in terms of its impact on humans, behavior, organizations, and thinking more and more these days about the impact of artificial intelligence in the world today.
0: You released your very first book in 1998 and your most recent one in 2020. What were a few of your biggest takeaways through your 22 year journey of research? Kind of how did um, media evolve during this
1: time period? yeah well sort of at its core i've always been interested in i guess sort of two principal things in terms of media the ways in which different communities and populations use media to express their their views about the world particularly like focusing on youth-based populations and even more specifically you know thinking about um, sort of racially marginalized populations african-americans primarily in my work with to some degree latinx as well and so You know, when, when I started doing my research, you know, primarily young people were expressing themselves through, through hip hop culture and, you know, using, you know, everything from music and fashion and video, um, you know, dance and other modes of expression as a way to articulate identity, as a way to build community, as a way to kind of find their voice and their place in the world. And, you know, that's, you know, only, you know, continue to manifest itself in the world today with, with with technology as it has expanded, allowing people to communicate in more uh, quick, quick, quicker ways, um, using mobile, using digital, using online as a way to build community connections, conversations. And so um, I would say the biggest shift has been just the ways in which technology has continued to expand and evolve in ways that allow a greater diversity of people to participate in the shaping of our media and popular culture.
0: Right, and in your two most recent books, um... Don't Knock the Hustle in the Digital Edge, you kind of explore this ingenuity among young people. Can you just take us through this innovation and what we can even assume for the future use of
1: media? Yeah, you know, in in, in many ways, right, we talk a lot about the, the the impact of technology on young people. And typically, right, the dominant narrative is the sense of which those impacts are perceived largely as negative, um, you know, in terms of undermining people's mental health, the physical health in terms of you know, exposing them to, to content or information that people may find problematic, you know, all of the sort of panics that come along with uh, you know, young people and their relationship to technology. But what we haven't paid as much attention to are the inventive ways that young people use technology, how they adopt that technology to, particularly today, right, in a world where the nature of work is changing, access to work and employment is changing, um, how they use technology, to to expand the notion of work to build uh, new skills and creative outlets that uh, enrich and expand their opportunities to earn income to participate in civic and political life and so in that regard um, you know the ingenuity that they bring is just sort of recognizing that the technology is not necessarily um, what it is today but rather what you make it uh, become and how you can articulate technology in ways that reimagine the future and build that future in some really interesting and compelling ways.
0: Yeah, and I think it's almost ironic too, just because of the past year with COVID-19 and whatnot, that we really saw a lot of these ingenuities come to life. Um, is that kind of something that you would have predicted previously?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just based on my work, right, that um, that you know, young people are, you know, I, I talk in a lot and don't knock the hustle about what I call young creatives. And these are really young people in their primarily 20s, maybe maybe early 30s. But, you know, the, the notion of, of work and career as we have historically understood it is simply no longer, uh, you know, a, a reality, right? For most young people entering into the workforce today. And so increasingly, right, they are they are being required to you know, create skills, in some ways, even, you know, create their own careers to invent new pathways to opportunity. And not only economic opportunity, right, in terms of entrepreneurship, but also civic and political opportunity to transform and impact their communities or the world around them. And so certainly, I think, you know, COVID and the kinds of ingenuity that we've seen in terms of building community, building um, resources, uh, networks, and opportunities, right, to help people navigate these challenging circumstances, are just kind of a reflection of the kind of entrepreneurial, kind of hustle aesthetic and uh, and spirit that defines so much of young people's existence today.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely been impressive to say the least um, over the past year of just everything that's been accomplished. And I was certainly shocked at just even taking classes online and doing all this stuff, like. I'm sure a lot of people didn't even realize that that would be a possibility pre-COVID-19.
1: No, you know, I think you're exactly right. And um, I mean, what we've, you know, I was, you know, some of the research that I did for the digital age and even for Don't Knock the Hustle were based on, you know, funding and support that uh, the MacArthur Foundation provided for this group of researchers that I was a part of uh, called the uh, Connected Learning Research Network. And one of the things that MacArthur sort of asked us to study and to look at were just how the ways in which young people learn were changing and evolving in a digital sort of connected age. And so the idea that people were going, young people were going online to learn new things, to connect to other people who share similar kinds of interests, passions, aspirations, and then building systems and, and networks and communities to sort of further facilitate that. And so the, the, the transition to online learning in some respects, wasn't necessarily a new thing for them. Although formal learning, right? School based learning online is a whole different thing. And it explains in part why at least for so many young people, it's been, you know, arguably a a pretty disastrous uh, failure.
0: No, definitely, definitely. All right. So I want to kind of take a look back at your career, then Um, you have a whole catalog of books. Can you just take me through which was your favorite? And on a bigger scale, just why, if it meant anything more to you?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, favorite, I guess, and you know, they're all like labors of love. I mean, writing—you know, I, I I like to joke that writing books is becoming increasingly hard, <laughs> just because of the amount of focused attention that it, that it takes. I mean, you really have to just kind of block out everything around you to to conceive of execute and then deliver a manuscript to your publisher. That's becoming harder and harder, right? With all of the the inputs and all of the noise and and emails and texts and things that we're we're always getting. And so just finding that time for for calm and quiet, just to focus and to actually deliver a finished product is a real challenge. Um, So they're all in some respects, right? A a, a labor of love. Um, You know, I guess the book that I just find it interesting you know, I published um, Hip Hop Matters, I think back in two thousand five, maybe two thousand six, and it's pro- of the books that I've written. It's probably the one that I get the most um, random emails. You know, literally people from all over the world. I mean, it's you know, it, it never fails, right? That someone sends me a message who, who has seen that book, who's read that book, or has heard about the book. And uh, this is just interesting, right, that 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 book has resonated in that way. So I would say that, that, you know, strikes me as just a really interesting sort of outcome. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's my favorite book, but, uh, you know, it's certainly, I think, one that uh, has reached a lot of people around the world in ways that I could never have anticipated.
0: That's awesome. Um, And just kind of on that same note, then, so you've also been an educator at the University of Texas for quite some time now. What do you find is the most rewarding aspect of being able to teach the next generation of young adults?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and and it's it's a question that I that I think a, a lot about and in the digital edge, you know, I write a lot about the future of learning and you know what what our educational institutions should be doing and what kinds of skills should we we'd be helping students to develop, particularly right in an age where we're seeing smarter and smarter machines. In an age where we're seeing automation, you know, an age where people are arguing that you know work is disappearing and there you know there won't be as many jobs in the future as there happened in the past. So what does that mean, right? In terms of you know what what are what what are the employable skills or the skills that can navigate you know this sort of future economy, which is really happening and taking shape today. And so what I really like about you know my classes and and the opportunity to work with students, particularly undergraduate students, is just to help them to develop that kind of disposition to to ask the critical questions, to sort of think about how they can not only ask questions, but also design ways to answer those questions or to provide solutions that address those questions. And so I've, I've become increasingly just intrigued by the world of design. And when I think of design and when I think of designers, I think of, of people or a skill where when you look at the world, you don't see the world as it is, but rather as it could be. And so for me, design is then the the methods or the process that you go to make that world that you envision more material or more real. And so just trying to help students develop those kinds of skills is something that's a challenge, but something that I'm really uh, sort of intrigued by and uh, and energized by in the classroom.
0: And we've kind of talked about previously, um, just how we've gone to like all online learning and that stuff, um, where do you kind of see it going in the future and would you say it's going to be more of like a combination of online and in-person learning or how do you figure that this like past year of COVID-19 will like integrate itself into the modern
1: culture moving forward for uh, the classroom? No, that's a great question. You know, I, I do think that, you know, once we will never get beyond this, right, the remnants of this will, will last for, for, for generations, um, as they should as we as we learn to become uh, you know, better at responding to pandemics, hopefully better at preventing them certainly from reaching the scale at which this one is reached. But you know, when, when we get to that point where people are reasonably comfortable and confident getting back together, you know, in enclosed settings. I do think that the in-classroom learning experience will continue to be valuable. Um, I think many, st- you know, one of the misnomers, you know, that oftentimes is made about young people is that, oh, they're so, you know, addicted to, and the word addicted is problematic, but they're, they're so, you know, connected to technology that they lose their ability, right, to talk to people. They lose their ability to communicate with people, even their interest in being around people. They just want to stare at the screens all day. And in my research, right, starting with the Digital Edge, which was published back in, I think, 2009, we, we, we've never seen evidence of that, right? In all of our observations and all of our interviews and in all of our research with young people, they've always had an interest in being with other young people, with people um, who share similar interests or passions and experiences. And so they've always wanted that sort of in-person, you know, kind of um, you know, connection. Um, and and I think we sort of have misunderstood that or, or really kind of... Uh, in some ways under acknowledge that. So I say all that to say is that I think that they will still want to be in the classroom with other students, to be in the classroom with that teacher, with that professor. But obviously right now with with our experience with, with Zoom and online learning, that will likely be an ongoing component or ongoing feature where you'll sprinkle in, right, the online or the virtual classroom or a session or a meeting that will allow you to perhaps uh, extend what happens in the in-person sort of real world uh, experience. And so there'll likely be a blend of some sort, a hybrid of some sort. But I think once we feel confident that we are relatively safe, that there will be a preference to be back in the classroom, to be back with people.
0: No, I I definitely think that's an interesting point too. And just for me, even being a student, I think I've heard that a lot this past year, just like with the rise of use of technology and stuff. They don't know how people or they have this fear that students or anyone really is going to become more like antisocial, I guess. And just from my perspective as a student, I I don't see that at all. I think there's definitely benefits to each side in like online learning and whatnot. But for me personally, I would much rather be in the classroom. I'm such a visual learner that it's just so much easier to and I, I think there is like the, I don't want to say need, but kind of like the want to be around people, too. So. Well,
1: you know, absolutely. I mean, there, there is there's growing evidence, right? This is even pre pre COVID, and certainly has only been exacerbated by COVID. But there's there's growing evidence and researchers who are making the case, right, that that we experience a loneliness epidemic in this in this culture, and. And so you can only imagine, right, how COVID has, has made that situation only worse. And so, you know, people really do, I think even, you know, one, one result of this would be that we have a greater appreciation for being with people, a greater appreciation for the, the connections in the community, the conversations and the sociability that comes with being able to be in person with people. And so I, I don't see people drifting away from that and, and, and rejecting that entirely. In fact, I see there being again, a greater appreciation and a more intense understanding and reflection of the value that that brings to our lives and to our our, our own personal uh, and emotional development.
0: No, I definitely agree. Um, Just to kind of shift gears again, so at the University of Texas, you are also the Director of Racial Justice Research. Can you kind of speak on what that means to hold this position and what the goal of um, the RFA is?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's part of the, the Good Systems Grand Challenge at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, UC, uh, the grand, uh, Good Systems is, a, uh, is part of the Office of the Vice President for Research. And it's a grand challenge. And what I mean in part by that is it's, it's, a, it's a campus-wide initiative that brings researchers from different departments, different programs to really study what oftentimes is referred to as responsible or ethical artificial intelligence. And within good systems, you know, I was asked and given the, the, the fortunate opportunity to help us think about the racial justice implications of artificial intelligence. And so there's a growing recognition, right? That, that systems like facial recognition, that algorithms and other kinds of data-driven, you know, advanced technological systems can develop, um, you know, disparities or produce disparate outcomes, along race, along class, along gender. And so part of our task is to think specifically about how do we think about a future in which artificial intelligence will reduce and mitigate racial bias and discrimination rather than exacerbate and expand racial bias and discrimination.
0: No, I think that's really important. And um, I think it also is important just because again, like most of what we've talked about too is this automation and this technological age is coming. um, And we got to definitely learn how to use it to our advantage too. Um, So you are also the founder and director of the Institute for Media Innovation at the Moody School of Communication. What was your motivation for creating the Center for Research?
1: Yeah, it's a a relatively new new institute. We're, I'd like to say we're in our our second full year of activities and, and programs and projects. You know, it was, it's a it's, it's a manifestation or an expression of, of my research over the years um, and you know so we I, I like to describe the institute as having sort of two primary uh, functions one is research and uh, you know again that's doing the things that we typically do in, a, in an academic setting bringing together faculty graduate students in some cases even undergraduate students just to ask really interesting and relevant research questions regarding this intersection between technology, innovation, and and the future of of media, for example. Be that artificial intelligence, be that social and and, and smart systems and technologies, just figuring out interesting ways to research and better understand the societal, behavioral, sort of social implications of those those tools. The other part of the Institute is, more of a design component. And so I I like the idea not only of studying the impact and the future of media, but also think about how we can participate in the design of that future. Can we build that future? And, And not in any sort of significant or massive way at this point, because we're still relatively young, but, you know, can we engineer or design simple solutions or prototypes that might open up a window of opportunity to sort of think about how digital platforms, how social platforms can be used, um, in, in, at least in terms of our, from our perspective, in ways that enhance the social good, in ways that address equity gaps. And so we're thinking about, for example, uh, you know, one thing that we're working on is a mental health platform and the ways in which you know, mental health uh, and digital technologies can come together to support and provide uh, you know, access to services that people otherwise might lack access to.
0: That's awesome, too. Um, can you kind of just, I guess it'd be, I'm sure there's a lot going on, but can you kind of just give a, a couple examples of the type of research that gets done or like in the past year, I guess?
1: Yeah, so, we, um, so, so we're currently working on a pretty major project with the city of Austin. So this is the Institute, Good Systems, the racial justice research focus area that you mentioned with some other researchers around campus. We are we're in the process of working with uh, the city of Austin to begin to start thinking about how the city is adopting technology, be that artificial intelligence, be that um, facial recognition, be that drones, beginning to help them think about you know, what are the, the equity implications of these technologies? In other words, right, when you adopt deploy you know, or use these, these systems, how are you thinking about uh, the, the, the prospects of these systems replicating or reproducing you know, discriminatory, discriminatory uh, you know, impacts or, or outcomes? And so how do you strategically mitigate or diminish the opportunities for these technologies to be used in ways that have that kind of impact? And so that's, that's one sort of major research project that we're, that we're working on. Before COVID, I put together a design team, the institute put together a design team to explore the use of, of digital media, uh, in this case, right, a, a mobile app for uh, addressing mental health issues. And obviously, right, as a result of COVID, telehealth and people you know, leaning on technology more and more to get access to services, this has become more and more of an urgent uh, kind of need. But this is something that I, I kind of discovered was was a trend particularly among young people, young people using social media young people using online media. As a way to seek out information about mental health as a way to find other people build community and conversation around their interests or curiosities related to mental health. And the degree to which they were seeking services right through through social and digital platforms. And so we we did research, right, to learn more and more about how young people are using technology in that way. A lot of research with professionals in this space. And then the design team has uh, built basically a digital prototype for a service that we would like to make available to people.
0: No, I think that's all important. Um, how would you kind of, I know you kind of touched on it there too, but how would you describe or... Did you have you seen a difference in the relationship between mental illness and technology since before COVID and then during COVID?
1: Yeah, you know it's one of the more prominent debates about you know technology and sort of its impact on our on our well-being. And sometimes I think the conversation can can be distorted. And we tend to, at least some tend to, you know, submit to the argument that, that technology completely dictates, right, how we feel, uh, our emotional state, you know, our, our mental health. And there certainly is a relationship, we just don't, we, as researchers, we're, we're still trying to figure out the nature or the direction of that relationship. In other words, right, does social media, for example, lead to people feeling depressed or feeling anxious? or? Is it that people are already experiencing depression or social anxiety and they connect to social media in some ways as, as a result of that? And, and again, that, that, that sort of causal direction is, is something that researchers are still trying to figure out. What is clear though, right, is that as we begin to develop a sharper understanding of the consequences of social media in our lives, how much time we spend with it, the kind of information that we are exposed to, um, you know, the degree to which it can, uh, you know, upset or diminish or impact our relationships. I, I do think that this conversation around technology and wellness is a really important one. There was certainly a conversation, right, that was happening pre-COVID, is one that is only sort of, you know, uh, deepened, you know, since COVID and certainly moving, moving beyond COVID. So there is a relationship there. What, what I'm seeing and hearing from the young people that we talk to is that there is a, a, a growing recognition of wellness and its relationship to technology and the degree to which people are trying to de- develop the skills and the agency to exercise greater control of the technology in terms of how it might potentially impact their, their mood. So what we saw during COVID when we talked to young people was you know, limiting how much time they were spending with social media, limiting, um, you know, um, their exposure to misinformation or disinformation via social media. And so, um, you know, in some cases, you know, reducing the amount of time they spent with an app, momentarily deleting an app from their phone, Facebook, Twitter, you know, whatever, Instagram. But, but there is, uh, I think, this, this, this swirl of attention that people are beginning to, to, to develop in terms of wanting to exercise greater control over the technology, uh, in terms of supporting, developing, and cultivating their own greater wellness.
0: Yeah, no, and even, I mean, some of the things that you just mentioned, like momentary deleting an app and stuff, I've definitely done that in the past year too. And there's just been a certain self-awareness with the amount of usage of technology and kind of how we interact with it. And I, For whatever reason, I think covid 19s just exemplified that. Um, yeah. So... I guess just- yeah, to of, You know, I think
1: it was, it was a ahead, situation sorry. where Chile, when the pandemic hit, you know, people you know, were turning to social media, turning to technology, you know, to, to learn more about this 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 epidemic or this pandemic. But then, you're right, just a flurry of misinformation and, you know, the polarized debate about the virus and about the mask and about how to best protect ourselves. You know, it just created a, a climate or a situation in which people just became, um, it just became more and more toxic. And I think people were trying to just figure out ways to already deal with the stress of the moment and then having to deal with this online toxicity on top of that, which is more than some people were willing or able to bear.
0: Yeah. Again, too, I think that's almost like funny and ironic because it's, it's almost like you could feel the tension in the social media sphere of everyone just fed up, not fed up, but, um, having to deal with COVID-19 and all the extra stuff. And I think the social media sphere got a lot more tense in the past year, definitely. Um. So just kind of to wrap us up then, can you just take us through uh, your future plans and any projects you have and how kind of we're going to try to move on from the COVID-19 uh, era in the social and media sphere?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, you know the extent to which issues of, of equity and racial justice and inclusion have you know emerged in some really striking ways as a result of this pandemic, right? Inequality, disparities, um, you know, equity gaps in health, in education, in technology, and elsewhere have just become so much more more pronounced. These things already existed but they become much more pronounced and in an emergency kind of crises at moment, like the one that we've been in. And so I'm hoping right, that, that my work will just contribute to our better understanding, how we address some of those equity gaps, how we develop policies and practices and procedures that allow us to, to be able to think in more um, intentional ways about being deliberate about how the technology can be used to mitigate reduce uh, the disparate impacts and outcomes that we see across race, class, and and gender, for example.
0: Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, you can find us at uiowa.edu backslash sjmc. For more episodes of the podcast, be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel.